of course, a mark of wisdom itself to have the ability to ascertain just what good counsel is and what it is not. Good counsel does not mean people tell you what you want to hear. Plenty of people will give you that in order to either flatter you or to ingratiate themselves to you in one way or another. Good counsel is objective and is extremely valuable. One thing that I've personally learned about this subject is to seek counsel from people who know something about the particular field in question. That should go without saying, but sometimes it doesn't. I've been offered counsel on how to lead a church from unchurched people. I've had counsel on how to make money from people who have none and how to get in shape from people who are in anything but good physical condition. Here's a clue as to how to find good counselors. A really smart person, someone who's worthy of taking counsel from, will not offer counsel in areas where he is not really well-versed. If someone offers counsel, no matter what the subject, you know those kind of people, they've got an opinion no matter what the subject is, they can correct you no matter what the subject, you need to run away from that kind of counsel. Be very, very careful. Ahithophel was a man that was known to give good counsel. He knew what he was talking about. In fact, the concluding verse of 2 Samuel chapter 16 reads this way, And the advice of Ahithophel, which he gave in those days, was as if one inquired of the word of God. So was all the advice of Ahithophel, regarded by both David and Absalom. His advice was not the word of God. But both David and Absalom valued it. In the case of David, this is hyperbole. David knows it's not the word of God. But it may not have been hyperbole when it came to Absalom. I'm not sure Absalom understood the difference. You'll recall that when Absalom entered Jerusalem in rebellion against his father, at the same time, Hushai the Archite, David's friend, entered from the opposite direction. Hushai was sent there as an agent of David to neutralize Ahithophel and his wise counsel. He was a spy, if you will. David knew that Absalom was prideful and perhaps even intelligent, but not wise. There's a difference between intelligence and wisdom. Ahithophel would add gravitas to the ticket, to use a term from back in the year 2000 election. With Ahithophel's counsel, Absalom becomes a much more formidable foe and David In this chapter, we're going to see God using Hushai to save David by frustrating the counsel of Ahithophel. The first counsel that we see Ahithophel give in the, in the previous chapter was pragmatic, but it was evil. Ahithophel knew that there were people in Jerusalem who were probably still on the fence when it came to this whole Absalom rebellion thing. In their minds, they had to wonder if a reconciliation was possible between father and son. It was, after all, between father and son. And if that happened, these individuals wouldn't want to be caught in the middle between David and Absalom. So they were sitting on the fence. They wanted to see how this worked out before they took Absalom's side. In light of that, 
Ahithophel moves to take that reconciliation option off of the table. He advises Absalom in chapter 16 to sleep with David's concubines in the sight of all Israel so that everyone would know that no reconciliation was forthcoming. That was evil advice, but it was for the purposes of Ahithophel. It was good advice. It was just evil advice. And Absalom had no problem following that advice. Ahithophel's second counsel, which is given in chapter 17, if followed, could have been, probably would have been, the end of David. In chapter 17, verses 1 through 4, we see, furthermore, Ahithophel said to Absalom, Please let me choose 12,000 men that I may arise and pursue David tonight. And I will come upon him while he is weary and exhausted and will terrify him so that all the people who are with him will flee. Then I will strike down the king alone and I will bring back all the people to you. The return of everyone depends on the man you seek. Then all the people shall be at peace. So the plan pleased Absalom and all the elders of Israel. Now, whether or not Ahithophel and the 12,000 men would have been able to strike down David alone and get away with it, I really rather doubt that. I don't see some of the men that were with David, Joab and Abishai, to be for two, that are going to allow that to happen and everybody just to come back. But nevertheless, this is the advice that Ahithophel gives. Ahithophel urges Absalom to move quickly against David. That very night, the very same day, before his father had time to regroup, Ahithophel assumes that David is tired and shaken. Not only David, but his loyalists have been uprooted all at once on a dime. And they're on the run. They could not have been well supplied. We saw that last time. They could not have been well organized. This is the time to strike, Ahithophel says. Don't wait. Pursue them right now. The plan seemed good to Absalom and to all the elders of Israel. The reason it pleased these folks was that it was a good plan. It's the right thing to do from a military standpoint. Under the circumstances, this was wise counsel. So we have Ahithophel giving wise counsel. Everybody agrees to it. And now in comes Hushai the archite, David's agent. In verses 5 and 6, Then Absalom said, Now call Hushai the archite also, and let us hear what he has to say. When Hushai had come to Absalom, Absalom said to him, Ahithophel has spoken thus. Shall we carry out his plan? If not, you speak. There's nothing wrong with Absalom seeking Hushai's advice. Actually, that's one of the wise things that Absalom does do here. Hushai was a respected counselor. Absalom is just going to confirm that they're all of, of the same opinion. Are we all on the same page here? So far they were. Hushai is going to give advice that was designed to deceive Absalom, to trick him into not taking the sound advice that Ahithophel had offered. Here, Hushai is faced with an ethical dilemma. He's David's agent. He's on the side of good. Absalom has no right to the throne. Absalom's intention is to kill the Lord's anointed. And if there's anything we learn from the Saul David narratives, is that it's wrong to lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. So we know that Hushai's on the right side. 
but yet he's going to lie and he's going to deceive. Or he's going to deceive and he's going to lie. Some people say, well, he's just being deceptive. He's not really lying. That's cutting it a little thin. He's lying because he's being deceptive. So Husha is faced with an ethical dilemma here. If he's to carry out the responsibility that he has to the Lord's anointed, he'll be forced to deceive. And deception, in this case, is a form of lying. Proverbs chapter 19, verse 9 reads, A false witness will not go unpunished, and he who tells lies will perish. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18 says, It is impossible for God to lie. The ninth commandment tells us not to bear false witness. But if Hushai is going to accomplish the greater good, he will have to deceive. Let's first look at the deception itself, the narrative of the deception itself. And then we're going to examine more closely at the closing moments of our time together tonight, the ethical situation that he faced. And we're going to evaluate whether or not Hushai does the right thing in this chapter. There are three key verses in this narrative. Chapter 16, verse 23, which we read a moment ago, that explained that the counsel of Ahithophel, listening to the counsel of Ahithophel, was as if one was listening to the word of God. It was that good. Now, again, the counsel of Ahithophel, particularly with regard to sleeping with all the concubines in broad daylight, that was pragmatic counsel, but it was evil counsel. So it's not the word of God. That it's just that Absalom and David looked at it as if it was that wise with regard to its content. Then in chapter 17, verse 14, there's another key verse here. And then in chapter 17, verse 23, in chapter 16, verse 23, we learn that Ahithophel was known for giving wise counsel. In 17, 14, it's going to be revealed that God had ordained Hushai to thwart the counsel of Ahithophel, which is admittedly good counsel. God, who cannot lie, nevertheless ordained the deception. It would appear that Hushai was not only David's agent, but was also God's agent. The third key verse is in chapter 17, verse 23, which we'll consider in just a moment. So back to chapter 17, verse 7. So Hushai said to Absalom, This time... The advice that Ahithophel has given is not good. Now, that's a lie. Hushai knew that it was good. We can tell that it's good, just even if we're not military people. We know that's the right thing to do. And in verse 14, the divine evaluation is that the advice was good from a military standpoint. Hushai knows it's not. He's, a smart, he's just as smart as Ahithophel. But Hushai says, this time, the advice that Ahithophel given is not, is given is not good. Hushai is so smooth. He doesn't just come in there like a bull in a china shop. It's as if he's saying, you know what, Absalom? Ordinarily, I would agree with Ahithophel. In fact, thinking back in my memory, this might be the first time that I've ever disagreed with anything that he said. But you know, this one time, just this one time, I'm not sure that the advice he gave you is really what you need to follow. And then he goes on to explain Verse 8, moreover, Hushai said, you know your father and his men, that they are mighty men, and they are fierce, like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. And your father is an expert in warfare and will not spend the night with the people. Almost all of that is true as well. But there's one little detail that's probably not true. 
And that's the very last phrase, that his father would not spend the night with the people. That doesn't appear to be David's modus operandi. In verse 9, behold, he has now hidden himself in one of the caves or another place, and it will be when he falls on them at the first attack, meaning Ahithophel. And by the way, it's unclear really whether Ahithophel thought he was going to lead the attack or whether that was an editorial we kind of thing. Ahithophel would plan it and someone else would lead it. But nevertheless, what Hushai says is, as soon as Ahithophel's men fall upon David, whoever hears it will say, there's been a slaughter among the people who follow Absalom. Don't go after him so fast. Take your time. That's what Hushai's advice is. And even the one who is valiant, whose heart is like the heart of a lion, will completely lose heart, for all Israel knows that your father is a mighty man, and those who are with him are valiant men. Now, that's true. But what he's doing, what he's counseling in verse 10 of this chapter is going to undo, or at least the counsel is, you don't want to undo what you just did in the previous chapter by sleeping with all David's concubines in broad daylight because you just, you just took away the whole idea of a reconciliation and you took away the idea that David might be coming back. But if you do this thing, then people are going to be scared that David's coming back. And what happens if David comes back? They assume that all the loyalists to Absalom will be killed. So you don't want that. You don't want to rush into this and make a mistake. Verse 11, but I counsel that all Israel be surely gathered to you from Dan even to Beersheba. That means from the north to the south, as the sand is by the sea in abundance, and that you personally go into battle. You lead them into battle. I think Hushai also knew that Absalom wouldn't be the best military leader either. He's, people who are full of themselves are seldom good leaders. Verse 12, so we shall come in to him in one of the places where he can be found, and we will fall on him as the dew falls on the ground. You see, that's an editorial. We, Hushai is acting like, listen, I'm on your side, Absalom. Not you're going to fall on him, but we're going we're to take David out. We will fall on as the dew falls on the ground. In other words, we're just going to blanket them. We're going to so outnumber them that they're going to just suffer massive defeat. And all the men who are with him, not even one will be left. And if he withdraws into a city, then all Israel will bring ropes to that city, and we will drag it into the, to the valley until there's not even a small stone found there. If there's a city, we'll tear the walls down. We'll get at him. He can't hide from us anywhere. If you just wait, take your time. David's not going anywhere. Let's gather all the men of Israel. We'll gather this massive force. 12,000 people Ahithophel wants, that's nothing. We'll gather ten times that amount, and we'll go after David. If you just take your time. Now, you see what Hushai's advice was designed to do. It was designed to give David, who's a better military man than anybody who's left. David's got his generals with him. He's got his mighty men with him. If you give them just a little bit of time, this is Hushai's thinking, give them a little bit of time to regroup and resupply, and David's going to have the advantage. The longer Absalom takes, the better it is for David. And Hushai knows it. So he comes up with this elaborate counsel that sounds good. And instead of somebody else leading this massive force out, Absalom, you lead the massive force out yourself. You're going to get all the glory. It'll be like one of the Roman processions that will happen actually later on in history. And you'll be the one riding the chariot. And everybody will be whispering in your ear, Sictrons at Gloria Mundi. Of course, again, that happened later. But you see what he's doing. He's playing to Absalom's ego here. First, he, he backs into it. Ordinarily, I would agree with Ahithophel. Man, he's a wise guy. He's a wise fellow. Man, he's smart. Just this time, I can't. Wait. 
course, that's deadly advice for Absalom. That's the worst thing that Absalom could have possibly done. And the reason I say that is because of the evaluation that takes place in verse 14. Then Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The counsel of Hushai, the archite, is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. Now, hold your thought right, right there for just a moment. If you go back to verse 4, all these people, and I assume the elders of Israel, all the elders of Israel that were, that were referenced in verse 4 is the same group that's referenced in verse 14. All these people that thought Ahithophel's advice was so wonderful, and it was, now they've switched over and said, you know, I think Hushai the Archite's advice is better. And then there's an evaluation, a divine evaluation. It's not part of the narrative, but it's something that the Holy Spirit, through the human author, inserts into the text to let us know the divine side of this. For the Lord had ordained to thwart the good counsel of Ahithophel. That's why I said it was good, because the Lord says it's good, from a military standpoint. For the Lord had ordained to thwart the good counsel of Ahithophel in order that the Lord might bring calamity on Absalom. That's the divine evaluation. Then in verses 15 through 23. Then Hushai said to Zadok and Abiathar the priests, This is what Ahithophel counseled Absalom and the elders of Israel, and this is what I have counseled. Now therefore, send quickly to tell David, saying, Do not spend the night at the fords of the wilderness, but by all means cross over, lest the king and all the people who are with him be destroyed. At the point where Hushai sends this message to the other secret agents, the, the other spies, he's not absolutely sure that Absalom won't change his mind and follow Ahithophel's advice. So he's telling David, get out, get out quickly so that you don't get trapped too close to Jerusalem. Now, Jonathan and Ahimaaz were staying at Enrogel. Enrogel is about a mile and a half, a mile and a half southeast of Jerusalem. So they're staying right outside the city. You can imagine they can't stay inside the city because if they stayed inside the city and people saw them hooking them outside the city pretty quickly and they knew that they were somewhat loyalist to David, they might think, wait a minute, something's not right here. So they're staying outside the city so somebody could go give them the message and then they take it to David. This is the spy network that David has set up. Now Jonathan and Ahimaaz were staying at Enrogel and a maidservant would go and tell them and they would go tell King David, King, King David, for they could not be seen entering the city. But a lad did see them and told Absalom. So two of them departed quickly and came to the house of a man in Bahurim who had a well in his court, and they went down into it. And the woman took a covering and spread it over the well's mouth and scattered grain on it so that nothing was known. Then Absalom's servants came to the woman at the house and said, Where are Ahimaaz and Jonathan? And the woman said to them, They have crossed the brook of water. Had they crossed the brook of water? No. This is another pattern. She's deceived in verse 19, and she's, they are deceiving in verse 19. She's lying in verse 20. And when they searched and could not find them, they returned to Jerusalem. And it came about after they had departed that they came out of the well and went and told King David, and they said to David, Arise and cross over the water quickly, for thus Ahithophel has counseled against you. Then David and all the people who were with him arose and crossed the Jordan, and by dawn not even one remained who had not crossed the Jordan. 
when Ahithophel finds out what's happened, and, and Ahithophel and Absalom apparently had some of their intelligence network as well, so they know where, David's, they know where David is moving to. When they find out that David has moved away, when Ahithophel finds that out, that his advice wasn't followed, and that David has moved to a place where he could be resupplied and reorganized, then in verse 23, now when Ahithophel saw his counsel was not followed, he saddled his donkey and arose and went to his home, to his city, and set his house in order and strangled himself. And thus he died and was buried in the grave of his father. You see, Ahithophel knew that David was now going to survive. And knowing that David was going to survive, Ahithophel knows that he won't. David's not going to allow this. It, it, was, it freaked him in the first place to find out that Ahithophel was among the conspirators. His, his wife's grandfather was among the conspirators. His closest advisor, other than Hushai the Archite, was among the conspirators. Ahithophel assumes David's not going to let him live. So Ahithophel returns to his hometown, Gilhol, puts his house in order, and kills himself. Remember David's prayer in chapter 15, verse 31? O Lord, I pray, make the counsel of Ahithophel foolishness. That prayer has now been answered in full. The final verses of the chapter relate that with the extra time, David does indeed regroup, and he does indeed get resupplied by three allies of the king at Mahanaim. The major issue in this portion of the chapter is the handling of the ethical dilemma. Actually, there are two in the chapter. The, the major one is Hushai the Archite, but I just pointed out another one, too, with this woman who hid the spies and basically said they went that away when they hadn't gone that away. Did she do the right thing? Did Hushai the Archite do the right thing? Verse 14 gave us a clue in that God ordained it. What we know from New Testament revelation, particularly Romans chapter 8, verse 28, that God works all things together for good. He can take something that's evil and turn it so that the overall result is for his glory. He used the evil Assyrians to discipline the northern kingdom. He uses the evil Babylonians to discipline the southern kingdom. He allowed our Lord to be crucified at the hands of godless men, evil men, in order to accomplish our salvation. So the fact that God ordained it may not close the case. I think it begins the argument. But since we know that God can take evil things and still use them for his own good, he can turn it for his good that's probably not as strong as I would like for it to be, to, just to close the case. In order to understand this more fully, and I told you a couple of weeks ago we would get back to this tonight, in order to understand this more fully, we need to consider three ethical theories that have been proposed by Bible-believing Christians to handle this problem of ethical dilemmas. I want to stress that one more time. All three of these theories have been proposed by Bible-believing Christians, good people, in other words. 
solid people. I happen to know those in each of the, people in each of these three camps, and I highly respect them. I want to stress to you, this is not an issue of orthodoxy, what I'm about to show you. But it is an issue that we must face, and since we must face it, we have to do the best we can when we face it, based upon the best biblical information that we have. Before I get into the particulars of these three primary ethical theories, I want to raise a question that is often asked. Follow me on this. People will ask, is something good because God says it's good? Or can something be considered good independently of God? Or do you argue from the opposite perspective, maybe this will be easier. Is murder bad because God says it's bad and only because God says it's bad? Or is murder bad in and of itself? Well, the question is a favorite of skeptics. Skeptics try to use that as a gotcha question. Because if you answer that question, that no, it's not good just because God says it's good. It's good because it's good. And then they will say, well, does something exist outside of God? Is there some moral law that exists independently of God? They try to use that as a gotcha question. So I think the question, while a nice gotcha question, really misses the point. It creates a false choice. Good, and this is so important to understand these ethical systems, good is that which flows from God's infinite perfections. In other words, the sum total of who he is. He will never will something that violates his character. He will not call good bad or bad good as if he was playing mind games with his creation. The key point here for our understanding of these ethical systems is that good flows from God's eternal and infinite perfections. Key word there too is eternal. Since God is eternal in who he is, no, there's not something that exists outside of him. The good that is good, with a capital G, has always been there because God's always been there. It's always flowed from his character. So, no, good is not a separate identity or a separate entity that exists independently of God. So how does this apply when it comes to ethics? First, a quick definition of ethics. Ethics is that branch of philosophy dealing with values relating to human conduct with respect to rightness and wrongness of certain actions and to the goodness and badness of motives and ends of such actions. You almost have to be a philosopher to come up with a definition like that. Most of us would just say ethics is trying to figure out what's right and what's wrong whether my motives were right or wrong when I did them. But that's a formal definition of ethics. Ethic, ethics is that branch of philosophy dealing with values related to human conduct with respect to rightness and wrongness of certain actions and to the goodness and badness of motives and ends of such actions. Generally speaking, Christians, evangelical Christians, will hold to one of three ethical options. Formally, they're known as unqualified absolutism, conflicting absolutism, and graded absolutism. Don't panic. We're going to briefly cover each one of these. Briefly. And since this is not a formal class in ethics, I am going to be brief in my overview of each. The first, unqualified absolutism. 
According to Norman Geisler, unqualified absolutism was given its classic presentation by Augustine, and then it was uh, further developed by a man named Immanuel Kant. The basic premise of this view is that all moral conflicts are only apparent. They're not real. Think about that for a moment. All moral conflicts are only apparent. They're not really real. In this view, sin is always avoidable. On the question, should one ever lie to save a life, the unqualified absolutist answers with an emphatic no. You never lie because lying is a sin. Even to save a life? No, you never lie because lying is a sin. To be fair, certainly Augustine was aware of the case of the Hebrew midwives and their lying to save the Hebrew babies, the Jewish babies, and also the fact that the text says that they were blessed in that account. Augustine was familiar, of course, with Rahab, the harlot, who lied to save the lives of the Jewish spies. And she's mentioned, I believe, in Hebrews chapter 11, the Hall of Fame of Faith, for her, uh, for her role in that. Uh, certainly, Augustine was familiar with issues like Hushai the Archite, our passage tonight. His answer on that, when, when faced with those examples, is fairly interesting. His answer was that these individuals were blessed not because they lied to protect human life, but because they showed mercy to the people of God. In this view, the Hebrew midwives should have simply told the truth and let God intervene if he chose to do so. Corrie Ten Boom and her family should have pointed out where the Jews were hiding and let God handle the repercussions of that action. And naturally, Corey Tinboom came a long time after Augustine. I'm using that as an example of those that con contemporary people that hold this view. So unqualified absolutism, originated originally by Augustine and Kant, believes that there's no such thing as a real moral conflict. The second system is known as conflicting absolutism. This view was actually originally a Greek thought, which was popularized in plays, in Greek plays by Sophocles and Euripides. But Martin Luther picked up on this in the 1500s, and, and who, although he was an Augustinian monk, and to understand Luther, that's always important to remember, to understand Luther and the Reformation and the whole Calvinism thing, you need to go, always go back to Augustine, trace it all the way back to Augustine's ideas. That's where it all started. But even though Luther was an Augustinian monk, he wasn't persuaded by Augustine's views in this area, and he promoted this idea that we call conflicting absolutism. In fact, he once famously told his good friend Melanchthon, there are times when we must sin boldly. Now, that sounds odd from somebody like, for somebody like Luther to say. But what this view, conflicting absolutism, holds is that moral conflicts are real. Sometimes they do happen. Sometimes we are faced with a dilemma, whether it's an either-or choice, but both of the choices, if we do one, it's going to sin. If we do the other one, we perhaps might sin. So what do we choose in that situation? 
Conflicting absolutism is also known as the lesser of two evils view. This view recognizes the reality of the dilemma and states that when faced with a moral dilemma, the Christian should choose the lesser of the two evils and then confess the guilt of that choice to God. Take Hushai the Archite, for example. If we were to insert him into this model, we would say that Hushai the Archite was placed in a position where he had no good choices. Either he lied, which in Luther's view here would have been a sin, and saved David, or he told the truth, which would have been the right thing to do, and he would have thrown the king under the bus, which would have been the wrong thing to do. And so what's a person to do? So Luther held that there were, this is a problem, and when faced with this problem, what the Christian should do, the Christian who has character, the Christian should choose whatever the lesser of the two evils is and then confess it. You see why he would say then you have to confess it? Because it's evil. You see, he, he, the sin, for example, of Hushai the Archite would have been to lie, so Hushai the Archite, in Luther's view, should have lied, but then he should have gone back to his own home got on his knees and confessed the lie, because it's the lesser of two evil views. Now, there are, there are several problems with this view, but one of the most serious that has been proposed through the centuries is that we need to remember that Christ, Hebrews tells us, Christ was tempted in all things such as we are, yet he was without sin. Remember, what Luther is saying is there's some, some situations you're going to come up against in life where no matter what you do, it's a sin. There are, you're just having to be in that situation. There is no choice that you can make that is not sinful. One or the other is going to be a sin. You choose the lesser of the two. But what about Christ? If Christ was truly like we are, and he was tempted in all things, yet without sin, conflicting absolutism doesn't have an answer for the issue of Christ having faced a real ethical dilemma. Remember, again, what Luther's saying, if you face this ethical dilemma, there is no right choice. You're going to sin no matter what you do. Pick the lesser of the two evils and then go confess it. But Hebrews tells us Christ was tempted in everything like we are, but he didn't sin. So either our Lord sinned, which, of course, we reject that completely, or our Lord faced no moral dilemmas in his life. In, case, in which case we'd have to reevaluate our understanding of the Hebrews passage that said that we have a high priest that was tempted in all areas such as we are, so he understands our weaknesses. You see, one of the problems with conflicting absolutism, it is a favorite of the Lutherans even today, whereas the, the, the first system is a favorite, unqualified absolutism, is a favorite, it came down to the Anabaptists. So Anabaptist and then Lutherans. The third view, which is the one that I hold personally, is called graded absolutism. It's very interesting if you trace the roots of graded absolutism back as far as you can trace it. Actually, this is also traced back to Augustine, which shouldn't really surprise anybody that studied Augustine, because whenever you study Augustine, you have to study the early Augustine and the late Augustine, because Augustine tended to change his mind. So you can't just say Augustine held this, because you've got to figure out when did Augustine hold it. It's, it's interesting, Augustine was a sharp guy. Both Catholics and Protestants claim Augustine. And so we have to say conflict, uh, that rather um, graded absolutism was probably traced back to Augustine as well, just at a different point in time in his life. 
the ethic here recognizes that there are higher and lower moral laws. This was an ethic that was first developed by the Protestant reformers apart from Luther, the other Protestant reformers. This came out of the Protestant Reformation. And again, it recognizes that there are real moral conflicts, just like the conflicting absolutism view held. But this view holds that there are higher and lower laws, and when they conflict, the Christian is responsible for following the higher law. Now you notice the subtle difference between the reformers' views and Luther's views. And Luther was a reformer, but I said the reformers outside of Luther. Luther held that there's no good choice you can make in that situation. Pick the lesser of the two evils. You're sinning when you do it. Go and confess it. The reformers recognized that there are higher and lower moral laws, and the Christian is responsible for following the higher law. In Matthew chapter 23, verse 23, Jesus chided the Pharisees for following the letter of the law, or some aspects of the law, while neglecting the weightier aspects of the law. It could be explained this way. When faced with an ethical dilemma for which there seems no right answer, choose the path of the greater good. Since one is choosing the greater good and not the lesser of the evils, one does not confess the choice. It's not a sin. Are you following? If you're choosing the greater good, it's not a sin. Whereas Luther's view is both are going to be sin, so confess it. In this view, the Hebrew midwives did the right thing in lying about Hebrew babies. So no confession was in order. The same with Rahab. And the same with Hushai the Archite. The same with Michal. You remember David's first wife? Who hid him and lied to the people that were coming after him in order to give David time to escape. She chose the greater good. The men were coming there to kill her husband. The woman in Baharim, who we just studied, chose the greater good in lying to Absalom's men. So there's no need for confession. There are unavoidable moral conflicts. And under this view, no guilt is imputed for what is unavoidable. Before I conclude this, let me remind you that there are fine Bible-believing Christians that hold all three of the views that I just gave you. In my view, the one that stands up best in the light of the biblical text is graded absolutism, choosing the greater good. This is not moral relativism, relativism or situational ethics, for what is at stake is not simply a desired end, as in situational ethics or moral relativism, but a higher law. These higher laws, among them justice, mercy, love, and faithfulness, are what Jesus was referring to when he referred to the more weightier matters of the law. What's the most important of all the commandments? I've heard it. Love. Exactly. If there weren't commandments that were more weighty than others, then why did you just say love was the most of the, the highest of the commandments? I know the reason you said it is because that's what Jesus said. So I'm going to trust the Lord to, to, to know that there are higher and lower commandments. That doesn't mean, and I want, to, I want to conclude with this, it doesn't mean that we take any commandment lightly. 
And in order to achieve rightness when it comes to any ethical system, but particularly graded absolutism, one must have solid character. Otherwise, you're going to find yourself in a boatload of trouble. In the end, Hushai the Archite, in my view, did the right thing. Once he accepted the challenge to go back and assist David, he faced a real moral dilemma. Some might argue that he didn't have to go back to Jerusalem so he could have avoided the moral dilemma, but that just punts the issue, if you think about it. In that case, he would have still faced the dilemma of helping the Lord's anointed or just passing him on by. So as I close, I want to leave you with this extremely important warning, a note of caution. Do not play games with God about this. My good friend Paul Shockley, in an ethics class that he gave at College of Biblical Studies, told me that when he was teaching this particular subject, one of the students came in right before the class was over and bragged to Paul in front of the rest of the class that he had broken several traffic laws to get there on time for the class. And he chuckled that he was following Paul's view, because Paul Shockley holds this view as well. Norman Geisler is another one that's popularized it. He was following the view of graded absolutism because he was performing the greater good. It was more important for him to be on class than obey the traffic laws. Paul rightly pointed out to him, Paul Shockley, not the Apostle Paul, <laughs> rightly pointed out to him that he had endangered himself and others in breaking those traffic laws, so he had not done the greater good. It would have been preferable to be late to class or perhaps leave home on time <laughs> so that you wouldn't have to do that. What the man presented was not an unavoidable conflict. So don't play games with God about this. Moral dilemmas, which I believe are real on a case, will happen in our lives. And when they happen, we need to take it seriously. We need to search the depths of our character, because that's where it's really going to come from, where virtue comes from, and make sure that we're making the right decision to choose the greater good, and not that we've just put ourselves in this position by other bad decisions. 